you've been at Hebron over the last eight weeks, you know that we're studying a series called Jesus Wins. And one of the reasons we began the series was we wanted to get to spiritual warfare, but we felt that before we got there, we had to establish a context. And so we've been trying to set that context. So we're in the eighth week of our series, and we're only in Genesis chapter 3. Kind of gives you an idea that there's a lot in Genesis that is a foundation for sound doctrine and understanding. What is the understanding? Who we are, who the Lord is, what He's called us to be, who is Satan, what kind of enemy is He for us, and what's the game plan? What's the purpose of life? What is the purpose of this period of time marked by a beginning and marked by an end and bookended by eternity? Now, it's interesting. We're going to be in Genesis 3, 1 to 15 today, and that's after the second scene. There are really three great scenes in the Bible. Scene number one is all of eternity, and it's expressed in one verse of the Bible, Genesis 1, 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In addition to creating the heavens, he created all of the angelic beings, including one who was named Lucifer, the bearer of light. And in previous weeks, we saw what he's done in both Ezekiel 28 and in um, Isaiah 14. We see that he seeks in pride to take the position of God, and God judges him. Not only does he cast him out of the heavenly Eden, cast him out of God's presence down to earth, he also destroys all that he's made, God does. That's the scene one. Scene two begins in Genesis 1-2. And the Spirit of God hovered over the face of the deep, and the earth was without form and void. And now we are at the beginning, near the beginning, of scene two. And guess what? All of us are living in the middle of scene, scene two. Scene two is ended when Jesus Christ again comes to earth in bodily form. And then he begins scene three, which is the creation of a new heaven, new earth, and all of eternity. So the Bible's really three scenes. And we're in the middle of the second scene. So let's go to the near the beginning of the second scene together. Is that clear? Okay, good. So I can move on? Okay, let's get to the scripture. Genesis 3, 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say to you, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to, to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called out to the man and said to him, Where are you? And the man said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? 
And the man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate it. And then the Lord God said to the woman, Where is the, or What is this that you've done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord said to the serpent, Because you've done this, cursed are you above all livestock, and above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and the dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity or hatred between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Little girl was uh, in the park, sitting on a park bench, reading her Bible. And an old man came up and sat right next to her and said, My dear, what are you reading? And she said, I'm reading the Bible. He said, why would you do that? Don't you know the Bible's full of lies and myths? Like that story of that man being swallowed by a whale and then living. That could never have happened. The little girl said, yes, it did happen. And when I get to heaven, I'm going to ask Jonah, and he's going to tell me it happened. And the old man said, what if he isn't in heaven? The little girl said, then I guess you'll have to ask him. <laughs> Somebody said, when you come to Genesis 3, you come to every essential doctrine of the Bible in embryonic form. Think of it. When you come to Genesis 3 and you read it and you study it, you come to the embryonic reality of every essential doctrine in Scripture. You've got the doctrine of God there, the doctrine of man, the doctrine of sin and judgment, the doctrine of grace. You've got all kinds of doctrine there, and the sad reality is most people, when they begin to get off in their theology, they get off at this place without a thorough and consistent understanding of the doctrines that have their rootage in Genesis 3. The Protestant Reformation. You know what that was really all about? A bunch of men and women began to discover the Bible. The church at the time had locked the Bible away. The priest said, there's no way we should get the Bible in the hands of the layman. They will rise up and do dumb things. And so they held it away. But as Luther and Melanchthon and Zwingli and others began to study the Word of God, it became alive to them. And all of a sudden, they began to rethink many of the religious systems that they had understood to be godly. They rediscovered the truth of the Scripture. And you know where they began to see it? In Genesis chapter 3. And you know what they said as sort of a, an adage, a way of shorthanding what the Protestant Reformation was all about? Out of darkness, light. Not out of darkness into the light. Because that would presume that light existed. Out of darkness, light. It was that dramatic, it was that foundational, that revolutionary. They had gone from darkness to light by the power of the Spirit of God. In fact, it was a lot like the Emmaus Road. Remember that? Luke chapter 24. I was at a retreat a few weeks ago with other churches in southwestern Virginia, and I later heard that I shouldn't say, remember that, because a lot of the people there didn't know it, so they couldn't remember it. So sorry about that. 
Luke chapter 24, this Emmaus Road, Jesus has been resurrected. 500 other people have been resurrected bodily. Jesus had met with a number of disciples in a number of different ways, and he's on this road with two disciples that are walking away from Jerusalem, going toward Emmaus, seven miles away, and he gets into a dialogue with them. It's late at night. They say, why don't you stay with us? Jesus is going to go further, but he says, okay, I'll stay with you. He goes in the house. He breaks some bread. Their eyes are open, and then Luke says, all at once, the eyes of their understanding are opened, and they recognize Jesus. And then beginning with Moses and all of the prophets, Jesus begins to interpret all of the Scriptures and what they say about Him. Wouldn't you have loved to have been a part of that Bible study? Well, you see, the Protestant Reformers felt as though they were there. Because as they began to study the Scriptures, they began to move from darkness to light. And they began to understand that there are these three great scenes of the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And along with the heavens, there are angelic beings of all types, many angelic beings, seraphim, cherubim, angels, archangels, and among them one whose name in Latin is Lucifer, who the name means bearer of light. And over the past seven weeks, we've looked at several occasions, and I, this is probably the third review, that there, when God created Lucifer, he placed him in his own presence in a place called Eden. You see that in Ezekiel 28. And this place called Eden was a place described very much in the same way God describes the new Jerusalem, the new heaven and earth that he will reform and create in Revelation 21. It's characterized by a lot of stones, gold, onyx, sardis, carnelian, so forth. And these stones represent precious metals that are known to exist that reflect part of the character of God. And so God places this greatest, most glorious of all created beings, one called Lucifer, the bearer of light, he places him in his position in Eden, in heavenly Eden. And he gives him three jobs. He becomes the prophet of God, the mouthpiece of God. When God speaks, he'll speak through Lucifer. He becomes the priest of God. The Bible indicates that he's the covering between all of creation and God. He's the intermediary between God and his creation. And then finally, God makes him king. He's king of all his created order. He is given dominion. He is given supervisory responsibility, rulership over all of creation. Those three offices are his. And if you've been here in the last seven weeks, you know what Lucifer does in eternity past. He gets puffed up with pride, and he says, in five ways, I'm going to usurp the power and role and position of God. I will exalt myself. I will rise up to the heavens. I will become like the Most High. And immediately, God's response is clear in Ezekiel and in Isaiah. The response of God is clear. 
God casts him out of heaven, casts him out of his position, casts him out of the heavenly Eden, casts him to earth, and he strips him of at least two or two and a half of his positions. He no longer is the spokesman of God. He's no longer the prophet of God. He's no longer the priest of God. He's not the intermediary between creation and God. And he no longer is the king of creation, but he becomes the prince of the power of the air. He has dominion over this present order. Not only that, everything God creates, he obliterates. It becomes dark. Light, creation, gives way to darkness and chaos. And immediately, the lights go out on Lucifer as well. He no longer has his position. He no longer has that name. Through the balance of Scripture, he's not referred to as bearer of light, Lucifer. He's referred to as Satan, the devil, Beelzebub, a number of other titles. He becomes the prince of the power of the air. And last week, in Tim's message, he mentioned that the judgment of God is absolute. And yet, just imagine Satan's antipathy, anger, hatred toward God. There's nothing he can do to restore the light. Here this guy is, the former guy, this former glorious angel who's perfect in beauty and full of wisdom and full of light. No longer he has any light. And so he roams through the darkness, and you can well imagine he might be calling out in the midst of the darkness, let there be light. And there is no light. He's full of rage. Imagine what he goes through. And then imagine what he goes through when God, by the power of his word and the hovering brooding of his spirit, says, let there be. Let there be. Let there be. Let there be. Six times, let there be. And there was. And God said, it is good. Someone has said, with every passing declaration of God, Satan learns two things. The extent of his fall and the limits on his power. When God says, let there be light, all of a sudden the light bearer, the former light bearer recognizes there is no intrinsic light in him. The only light he had was reflected. It was reflected light. It was God's light. And no longer is he in God's presence. God had formed the heavenly Eden and positioned Lucifer with those three offices, and yet when Lucifer rebels, God casts him out and he destroys what he has created. And then in Genesis 1, 2 and following, he begins to say, let there be, let there be, let there be. And all of a sudden, Lucifer, who is now Satan, can you imagine his torment? And then when God makes a new Eden on earth, a garden... That's not characterized by stones, though there are three stones mentioned, gold, onyx, and then this fragrant, aromatic resin. You say, that means the garden smelled good. But this garden on earth is characterized by lush vegetation, rest and peace, animals living in harmony together. 
abundance. There are four rivers. There's all kinds of trees, even fig trees or fig bushes. It's a very different kind of Eden, and yet in one significant, I mean, that's an understatement, one profound way, the earthly Eden is just like the heavenly Eden was. The presence of God is there. What's the Bible say? God walked in the cool of the garden. Before the fall of man, God establishes in this garden a new being made of dust. His name is Ish in Hebrew. Her name is Isha in Hebrew. They are fleshly, they're made of dust, and yet they're created in the image of God. And when God does that, Satan says in his own mind and heart, I'm getting busy. How? Well, let's dig in. First, notice the target. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and all of the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Now, who had that responsibility before? Lucifer? All the created order, whatever it was. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. And then at the beginning of chapter 5 of Genesis, we get a commentary on this verse when, he, when the writer says, This is the book of the generations of Abraham. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female he created them, and he blessed them, and he named them man when they were created. Now this should be, this parenthetically, this should put shut everybody's mouth that talks about the exclusivity of the Scripture when it comes to gender. When the Bible uses the term man, it is a generic term which means male and female. He created man, male and female he created. You know why? Because everything God created reflected his own character and being, which means that there are female as well as male aspects, as it were, to God. And think of Satan's reaction to this. He's been cast out of the heavenly Eden. And now he knows he's replaced. Not only has God replaced the heavenly Eden with an earthly one, but now he's been replaced by people, by human beings, who are made in the image of God. Can you imagine his amazement? Who knows how long the darkness had been over the face of the deep. But then God begins to speak, let it be, let it be, let it be, let there be. And then he breathes into the dust and creates man. And Satan instantly knows, this is my rival. Now think about that rival for a minute, you and me. God doesn't create us out of stardust. That's a song. He doesn't create us out of celestial spirits. He creates us out of dirt. And not even dirt, dust. Do you know what dust is? How useless 
how disgusting, how unnecessary, how much of an afterthought, and yet God breathes into the dust. Now you think about your dustiness, and I'm talking about your house. If you want to get somewhere, you can go as fast as your legs can carry you unless you use artificial means of transportation. If you want to get up in the sky, you've got to get into a balloon or you've got to get some wings and jump off a tall place or building. Or you've got to get an airplane. And if you've got the wings over a, on a tall place, chances are you're going to die because you're going to fall. Because God makes you not only as a spirit being, but also a fleshly being. And the law of gravity is, is constricting. It's over you. And when we're in the sky, we always run the risk of dying. And then you want to walk, go on the water. Not in the water, on the water. You've got to get a boat or a raft or some kind of flotation device. And the possibilities are, are really real that your boat might go down. I mean, look at what happened this week in New Jersey. Or maybe you want to go faster on the face of the earth. So what do you do? You've got to get in a car or a, a boat or a train. If it's a car, you know, you get in a Yugo, you're not going real fast. If you get in a Ferrari, you're going fast. But whether it's a Yugo or a Ferrari, the chances are very good sometimes on a rain-slick highway going around a corner. You might careen out of control and crash into a tree. You know what the Bible says? In Psalm chapter 8, God made man a little lower than the angels. Ladies and gentlemen, that's an understatement. We're a lot lower than the angels. We don't have wings to fly. We don't have direct access to God like an angel does until Christ comes. But in one powerful way, we are greater than the angels. And you know what that way is? We are created in the image of God. No angel was created in the image of God, not even Lucifer. We are created in His image. We have a position greater than any other creature, and Satan knows it. Listen to what Paul says about some dust that God made and then redeemed. Through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to every ruler and authority in the heavenly places. Who's that? That's every angel, and that was the position that Lucifer had. Remember when the Pharisees come to Jesus and they say to Jesus, why don't you get your disciples to shut up? That's my translation. And Jesus said, if I got them to shut up, the very stones would cry out. You know what a stone is? It's a collection of dust that's hardened. I tell you the truth, if they were quiet about me, other dust would cry out. You see, when God breathes into the dust, Satan knows he's got a target. He knows he's got a rival. He knows he has to take him out because his enemy is God, and he must attack God by annihilating this rival. And how does he do it? The same way Satan always does it, to cast doubt on the Word of God, the creative Word of God. He believes if he can tempt them to follow his will rather than the will of God, their maker, then he, Satan, will win. Second, notice the testimony. 
But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? Now, do you think God asked that question because he didn't know? Where are you? Now, God had said, in the day that you eat of the fruit of this one tree, in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. But notice, Adam and Eve don't die. There's no outward sign of death. They don't instantly age. They don't instantly croak. In fact, the Bible says Adam lives over 900 years. So how does he die? Or was God lying? Well, for centuries, solid, orthodox, biblical scholars have looked at what it meant to be made in the image of God. The first thing they concluded was we are rational beings, unlike all the rest of the creation. We have a rational mind that functions. No dog does that way. That's instinct. But then they said, no, there's more to it than that. It's got to be more than that. There's a soul. Man becomes a living soul. There's a soul. And that soul is immortal. That's, yeah, but it's got to be more than that. And you know what they began to conclude? Because they understood the Scriptures. To be made in the image of God means that God created men and women. Adam and Eve, with the capacity to apprehend spiritual truth. They could have communion with God who is spirit. Now look at what Adam says to God when God finds him in the garden. I heard the sound of you, and I was afraid and I hid. He didn't hide before. He walked with him in the garden. He talked with him in the garden. He wasn't afraid of God at all. They had a close kindred spirit. There was a communion between them. Before he disobeys God's word, he knows nothing but full communion with the one who made him. He walks with the Lord. He talks with the Lord. The Lord speaks to him. They have fellowship one to another. And you know what else? They will one will. He wills only the will of God until he determines to will his own will. You know, that's the most significant difference between a Christian and someone who does not know Christ or trust him. They're hiding. They hide from God. They want nothing to do with God. And if you don't believe that, walk in my shoes for a week. Now, maybe it's because I'm undesirable, and I think that's true, but part of it's that reverend line. Like, oh, we don't want to I represent God. And a poor representation. They're hiding in the trees. Listen to what Paul says about natural man after the fall. The natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. He's unable to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Listen to what he says to the Romans. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. You see, the testimony of Genesis 3 is clear. God made man in his own image. Instantly, man becomes Satan's target. Satan conspires to do everything he can in his own power to destroy the image of God, to destroy the plan of God, to destroy the glory of God, if he can beat the rival. 
and make him conform to Satan's will, his enemy God will be thwarted. Then third and finally, notice the triumph. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. When God creates man in his own image, Satan is incited to do what Satan always does. The great thing about Satan is his tactics never change. When he rebels against God, when he's in the heavenly Eden, it's because of his own pride. I'm going to be just like God. I can do this thing. Maybe that's where Nike got the adage, just do it. Just do what you want to do. And so what Satan do here? If I can get, just get that lowly, dustly creature to follow my will rather than God's will, I win. And that shouldn't be so hard. After all, I've convinced a third of the angels to fall with me. What's so hard about a creature made of dust? So what's he do? He plants seeds of doubt in the mind of Eve and also in the mind of Adam, he questions God's word. Did God really say to you that you can't eat of any of these great trees in the garden? Eve said, no. He said, we can't eat of one. Oh, the reason God said that was because he knew that if you ate the tr of the tree, you'd be just like him. That's what I attempted to be, just like him. You won't die. You'll know the difference between good and evil. And when Adam eats, Satan knows the destruction of man is imminent because he knows how God has judged him. As soon as Adam eats, it's finished. God is going to cast him out of Eden. He's going to annihilate him. He's going to drive him into the darkness. He'll have nothing to do with him, and God will be defeated. But guess what? God surprises him. He's not cast out of Eden right away. In fact, God goes into Eden looking for him. Not only that, he's not kicked out of God's presence. God comes into his presence. And instantly, Satan learns something because he doesn't know the, the uh, future. He learns that God will judge his creature made in his own image differently than he judged Lucifer, who is now Satan. When God judges Lucifer, it's instantaneous. He casts him out of Eden. But when God judges man, male and female, he does it with grace. There's grace in his judgment. Listen to what he says. In great pain, you will bear children. In great toil and sweat, you'll bring forth food. In other words, you're going to continue to live. I thought I was going to die. No, you're going to keep living. And what's remarkable, more remarkable than that, God says, I am placing hatred between you, Satan, and this woman, between your seed and her seed. You know why God does that? 
Because God never had any intention of having man follow the will of Satan. There will no longer be two wills in the universe. Now there will be a billion wills. There'll be Chuck's will. There'll be Doug's will. There'll be Susan's will. There'll be Mary's will. You say, is that good news? No, not really, but it's a whole lot better than having us will the will of Satan. And then you know what God says? The seed of woman, the one she will bear in much travail, will crush your head, Satan. Oh, you'll bruise his heel, but he's going to crush your head. Tim taught me how to do that. <laughs> now, who is the seed? I mean, take the rest of the Bible. Is it Cain? No. Is it Abel? No. Is it Seth? No. Is it Enoch? No. Is it Lamech? No. Oh, Noah? No. Abraham? No. Isaac? No. How about Moses? No. David? No. Jeremiah? No. Ezekiel? No. Malachi? No. This seed born of woman will be divine seed. This seed I will send will be my very self. And I will be born of woman. And I will suffer at your hands. And I will give you every opportunity, Satan, to believe that you've won, but you haven't won. My seed will crush your head. And when he does that, he will restore everything that's been lost, all the image that of, of God that's been lost in fallen man will be restored. Man will take the very image of God. There'll be fellowship with him. He'll restore everything that was lost. And ladies and gentlemen, that's happening in your life as a Christian, whether you know it or not. He's restoring to you peace and joy and rest in Jesus Christ. That's what he's saying. Spiritual death is not the end. There's coming spiritual life. I'm going to generate that spiritual life. It's not going to be your choice. It's going to be my choice. It's not the choice of Satan. It's not the choice of men. It's not the choice of women. It's the choice of God. He is going to do it. He is going to come and collect for himself a whole army called the church who will crush the head of Satan because Jesus Christ will be their Lord. He will breathe into dusty souls, spiritually dead souls, and they will become new creatures in Christ Jesus. That's what Paul's talking about in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation, a new creature. All things are new. All old has passed away. Behold, all things have become new. That's exactly what John is saying in John 20. Jesus has resurrected. He's, all, he's done all of his completed work on the cross. He's brought to us his own righteousness. What does he do? He locks himself away behind closed doors with his disciples, and he's taught them already. He's eaten with them already. He's had supper with them. He's had breakfast with them. He's done all kinds of things with them, and now he's going to breathe on them. Breathe into that death, that spiritual death, spiritual dustiness. He'll breathe on them and say, receive the Holy Spirit of God and they will be made new. Do you see that? It all is there in embryonic form in Genesis 3. 
And if you get off of Genesis 3 without understanding that rootage, you're in deep weeds. John understood it. Paul understood it. Peter understood it. The question is, do you understand it? Because when you do understand it, it changes everything. This plan of God to save you wasn't in response to Satan's fall or Adam's fall. The Father knew this plan. He nuclated it before He created a single thing, before Genesis 1-1, and that means good things for you and me. Because what God begins, He always finishes. Grace is greater than any sin. Think about that. Amen.